And the topic that I'm focusing on now is the World Trade Organization and how China's growth has affected the WTO and sort of a, a, a look forward into the future at how an international trade organization like the WTO can function with member, very strong member countries who have such different philosophies about um, the role of government in, in the economy and, and in, in trade. Well, um, I'm very happy to help on this. Um, how much do you, are, are you very familiar with the WTO? Do you know how our how we're structured? Uh, if if not, let me give you some background. You you stop me if this is boring and you know all of this anyway. But let me just give you some important background that that might put this into a context that would be helpful to you. Okay, perfect. We have 100, 157 member countries. We just have taken on four new members in the last year, notably Russia. Yep. Uh, the the organization operates on the basis of consensus, which mean, doesn't mean that everyone agrees, but it means that no one can disagree. Governments have the right, any government has the right, to hold something up if its national interests are being adversely affected. And this happens. You, you sometimes have cases where there's only one country that, that stands up and says, I'm sorry, we can't do this. Uh, you've had the U.S. do it, but you've also had St. Lucia do it. Generally speaking, though, that doesn't happen very often. You tend to have m much more often a situ situation in which you'd have groups of countries that may not go along. Now, sometimes that group is, is relatively small, a dozen or so countries, but that doesn't matter. If those countries are not prepared to go along with something, it does not happen. And this consensus-based system of decision-making had been with us since the organization began, and it was the case with the predecessor organization, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, or the GATT. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, it, is, it is something that is considered absolutely essential by all members. There is no possibility that this system of consensus will ever vanish, um, because all governments really... Um, depend on the right to be able to, at the end of the day, stand up for their national interests, uh, if that's the case, even in the face of, 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 a, of a large majority of other countries favoring some kind of a measure. So th that's, that is the case, and it's something that has been and will not change. It, you can imagine when you have 157 uh, members, dif different countries, which as you indicated in your opening uh, remarks, are very diverse and have um, very different interests, uh, it makes it very hard to get agreement. Mm -hmm. I believe we do. Um, we get agreement on, on important things, uh, but on other things we've had a lot of difficulty, and one of these things has been, the, for example, the Doha Development Round, which was started in 2001, and um, which has, has really uh, hit a, a big impasse and there's a number of reasons for this. One of them is that there is a big disagreement between the U.S., certainly Europe too, um, and some other countries, and the big emerging countries, China, India, Brazil, over the role those countries, those BRICS countries, should be shouldering uh, in these negotiations. Um, the U.S. points out China, the largest exporter of goods in the world, they should open their market essentially to the same extent that uh, industrial countries do. China says, well, we may be the world's largest exporter, but we are indeed a developing country by any reckoning, and the mandate of this negotiation is that there will be less than full reciprocity, is the, is the jargon-esque term we use, for these countries in this negotiation, i.e., yes, they will open their markets more to, uh, to imports of goods and services, but they will not open their markets as much as the others are required to do, uh, the other industrial countries are required to do. The poorest countries, the LDC members of our organization, would not be required to uh, engage in any additional market opening beyond where they are, either in goods or services, and that's, that's something on which everybody agrees. Now, 
China is, is different from other developing countries in that it went through a very rigorous process of accession. And the Chinese uh, opened their market as, as, an accession, as an exceeding country to a much, much bigger extent than almost any other developing country. Uh, their average tariffs on goods are about 9%. Uh, their average tariffs on um, agricultural products are about uh, 15%. And now that 15%, for example, is lower average tariff than Japan, Switzerland, or the European Union. Mm -hmm. When, when you compare China with other uh, uh, developing countries, the average tariff um, for agriculture products in India is 113%. And for goods, it's about mm, 34, 35%. Okay. That's a, that's, a, that's a kind of an example. And India, for example, and Brazil, they were founding members of the GATT. So they've been around a long time. Brazil, just to give you another example, their 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 um, their their tariff average is 35% for ag and about 31% for for industrial goods. Those are the those are the, when I'm quoting these figures. These are the legal ceilings beyond which they cannot go. Okay. They can go below that if they need to, and in many cases, developing countries do that because the tariff policy is essentially a government's attempt to strike a balance between the interests of producers and the interests of consumers. And if you have very high agricultural tariffs, this is good for your local farmers, but it's bad for your local consumers. And in the developing world, of course, many of these consumers are quite poor. So this tax on food is something that sometimes governments say, we don't want to do this. But they have the, the right under our rules to go up to the levels that I've just quoted. Okay. So, so the background to the WTO, the reason this thing came about is, uh, and I was just out in San Francisco and went to Muir Woods and, and uh, recalled this to my kids who were born stiff, of course. <laughs> um, the, the reason, the, the principal architect, really the driving force of the entire multilateral system was Franklin Roosevelt mm -hmm. and his, his, um, his various and sundry uh, uh, ministers and, and aides. And the rationale at that time for the U.S., was that leadership is much easier to um, exert in the context of multilateral uh, of a multilateral framework. So they came up with the UN, they came up with the World Bank and the IMF, and they had something called the International Trade Organization, which never came to, into being because President Truman was of the view that Congress would not pass it. So instead what happened was this general agreement on tariffs and trade, which to this day is is the basic treaty that forms the foundation for the WTO, that went ahead anyway with 23 signatories back in 1948. And over time, there were, there were measures to reduce, to reduce uh, trade obstacles that took place over a course of eight so-called rounds of negotiation, the Doha round being the ninth. And in, in 1995, uh, the WTO itself came into being, and it was in some ways similar to the, to the GATT, but different uh, in some very important ways, notably um, a much strengthened dispute settlement system, a, uh, an inclusion of agriculture, services, and intellectual property protection in the mandate of the organization. We have agreements that cover these things. Uh, and, uh, and those were really the key issues. Textile, textiles was, was, was um, managed textile trade in a very different way from many other um, manufactured products to the detriment of many developing countries. Uh, and so these, these uh, agreements changed the nature of trade. When China joined in 2001, and I think you're, you're right to suggest that since coming into the WTO, uh, China's presence as a trader has become greatly enhanced. There are a number of reasons for this. Um, one of them has to do with the reforms that China had to undertake to become a member. Because you negotiate with all of the members of the organization that, that wish to engage with you, and you need to get the support of all of them. Uh, and you, what you do when you come into the WTO, and this is very important, the, the founding, well, the basic principle of the WTO is non-discrimination. Mm -hmm. The reason why Roosevelt and others 
believed it was so important to have global rules for trade is that the rules of the game changed quite a lot uh, historically, and there was often a, an effort to use trade policy to pit some, some groups of countries or some countries against others. So I would say, let's say I'm, uh, I'm Chile and you are Colombia, I would say, okay, Colombia, um, you want to export um, uh, grapes to me, I'm going to charge you a tariff of 10%, but I'm going to give Argentina a tariff of only 5%. You, you can imagine that this kind of discrimination created certain tensions, which um, were uh, which 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 grew and grew, particularly particularly when you had a situation where you had a sharp economic downturn. Right. Uh, and in the in the nineteen in the late nineteen twenties, when we had the stock market crash, you had. Uh, two members of Congress, Congressman Smoot and, and uh, uh, Senator Smoot and Congressman Hawley, who passed this, who put forward the Smoot-Hawley Act, which basically raised tariffs many-fold on thousands of, of, uh, of products coming into the country. And the reaction was, of course, predictable. The Europeans, the Canadians, other industrial countries, big trading countries, uh, did exactly the same thing to U.S. Um, exports. And trade, which, which has the potential when there is a uh, steep decline in domestic demand to offer a way for growth and employment, uh, this was stifled by these very high barriers to trade. Uh, so, so that, and that in turn created those, these barriers to trade created uh, regional blocks, they created massive tensions, which, which many economists and historians believe, believe contributed to the, um, to the advent of the Second World War. So, this was the thinking of the architects of the international system, and that's how the WTO arose. Obviously, it's had to evolve over time because of the changing nature of the global economy. Um, and the U.S. has always been, uh, if not the principal leader, among, among the principal leaders. And, and that continues to be the case to this day. Now, now China, the, another reason why China was able to do well out of membership in the WTO is that when you... When you become a member of the WTO, it is expected that you will adhere to WTO rules. And these rules cover a wide a, a variety of different elements of trade, but not all by any means. Uh, but by adhering to the rule of law, so to speak, this gives a certain assurance to foreign investors. And after China's um, uh, accession to the WTO, inward foreign investment went through the roof. Mm -hmm. And that led to um, the, uh, all kinds of enhanced productive capacity. And I would say that, that those two things, the reforms that the Chinese engaged in and the, this flow of inward foreign investment, um, coupled with the fact that you had, uh, obviously, a lot of very intelligent, hardworking people there uh, and a massive domestic market, this has been a, a key reason that the country has, has grown as quickly as it has. So that's, that's, the, that's the background. Okay, great. So a couple of questions, Keith, based on um, uh, the, the background that you just described. In terms of the, the consensus requirement and allowing countries to stand up to their national interests, can you give me some examples of when countries have done that? When they've been the only country that would say no. Right. Sure. Well, we, there was an effort to um, amend our intellectual property agreement. And the reason for this had to do with getting enhanced access to medicines. You have uh, a, a, an agreement, it's called the Trade Related Intellectual Property Agreement or the TRIPS Agreement. Mm -hmm. And this agreement is a balance between the rights of governments and the rights of patent or copyright holders. And in the case of, of patents for medicines, the, the rules say clearly that governments can negotiate the price of drugs with pharmaceutical manufacturers, and if they do not get a price which is, to their way of thinking, attractive, um, if the patent holder will not sell the drug at that, at that level, um, 
then the government can do something which is um, called compulsory licensing, and they can re they can get the license to um, to use the patent. It can be produced by a domestic manufacturer, and this works in countries like Brazil or Thailand that have a uh, a very good generic capacity in the pharmaceutical industry. India is another good example. But it doesn't work very well in Tanzania or Mali or Chad or, or Burkina Faso. So the proposal was to alter the, the, the amend the TRIPS agreement so that in countries that do not have adequate capacity to produce these drugs generically, these countries can import such drugs from those developing countries or other countries that can. And this took place uh, in the early part of the last decade, about 2002, and it was the United States that um, did, not, did not favor uh, this amendment in the beginning. Uh, uh, eventually, eventually that, uh, that changed and the U.S. came around there was a consensus. Another example of this has to do with a dispute settlement case um, involving St. Lucia, and it was about bananas. And the idea of this case being brought um, by Latin American banana producers and the U.S. against the EU, who granted special um, market access to banana producers in their, in their former colonies, uh, St. Lucia was very upset about this case being brought, so it blocked the agenda of every um, meeting that the WTO held for a whole week. They shut the place down. Because in the beginning of each meeting, the chairman of that particular council or committee says, is the agenda acceptable to all? If a delegation says no, the meeting can't take place. Okay. So they did this. Now, if you're the only country out there, you come under extreme pressure, and eventually the U.S. and, and, um, and, and San Lucia came around. There was an example of, of one of the uh, appellate body jurists who was from China, uh, Chinese Taipei, otherwise known uh, to most people as Taiwan. Mm -hmm. They objected in the beginning. They dropped their objection. So those are some examples. It doesn't happen that, that often, um, but, but there are instances where it has happened, and much more common would be instances where you might have a small group of countries that insists on being able to have very high levels of protection for farmers who are uh, relatively well off, for example. Right, right. Okay. So when you talked about um, China's relatively low average tariff ceilings or average tariffs, yeah. I have read quite a bit about uh, non-tariff measures. And yep. that China is not not certainly not the only country, but but is quite adept at engaging these non-tariff measures. Um, and for example, well, right. So so you know standards, regulation, that sort of thing. And that in addition, the fact that China hasn't signed on to the government procurement agreement, that together those kinds of, of activities present um, pretty high barriers to trade. Why, so China gets to still technically be, um, you know, technically not be in violation of the WTO rules, but is in effect blocking trade or... or, or um, directing trade in its favor? Well, certainly there are, there are governments who have complained about, about China's um, uh, non-tariff measures, certainly. Um, and as you rightly say, China is by no means the only country that has been, um, been taken to task for this. Uh, they've been taken to task for intellectual property protection. Uh, again, they're not the only ones on this front, but but they have been taken to task for this. And on on some um, uh, foot dragging on the question of uh, opening services markets. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the numbers, if you look at what's happened uh, in China in terms of their 
um, their imports. Well, they're the number two importer in the world. They import more than a trillion dollars worth of goods and services. The U.S. is the only other country that's in that same category. And imports from the rest of the world have soared. I don't have the stats right in front of me now, but if you go to our website, you can find them, and I can dig them up for you if you want, which show that, that U.S. exports to China have tripled or quadrupled in the last, in the last few years. So they are importing a lot. Uh, they are a, a very fast-growing economy, and I think it's fair to say that as a result of their, um, their growth and sucking in imports, this has had a very, very important um, and, and positive impact on economies elsewhere, certainly economies in their region, but in the U.S. as well. It's one area where export growth has been, has been growing very strongly. Uh, if you look at the slowdown in Europe and this sort of continued, continued sluggishness in the Japanese economy, this contribution to the global economy has been very important. Having said that, what you said is, is certainly true, um, and there are also it's also true that that WTO rules do not extend to all elements uh, of uh, of trade policy, and non-tariff measures as tariffs become lower and lower, uh, and to the to many to 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 many um, exporters at the moment, the level of tariffs in many countries is is insignificant. The much bigger burden to them are these non-tariff measures that you mentioned. It could be um, bureaucratic red tape, it could be standards, it could be um, uh, import licensing requirements. There's a whole range of different measures that are out there. And if you look at the uh, World Trade Report, which we've just published back in July, it's all about this. Right. What it tells you is that in the future, this is going to become really the, the, the area where there are more difficulty, and it's particularly the case when you start to see uh, governments drawing up regional agreements where you may have a very different sets of regulations and standards. So to answer your question, it's, it's a mixed bag. Um, no, no government in the WTO, with, with perhaps the exceptions of New Zealand and, and, uh, and Singapore, could be considered saintly in their, in their trade policies. But... I think if you look at the numbers, it's pretty clear that the Chinese market is, is certainly not closed. Right, right, sure. So speaking of um, the regional trade agreements, it was the, what was it, the 2011, it was Baguati and, and I can't remember the other um, head of the, the report, a group of economists and other experts got together to... Uh, Peter Sutherland. Sutherland, yes, the Sutherland report. Thank you. And and my reading of it, it seemed like the formation of regional trade agreements was, in their opinion, a very significant risk to yeah. the the multilateral trade organizations, the WTO, essentially. Um, so, I guess my question is, what has what why have these regional trade agreements um, increased? Why, why are we seeing more of them? For a very simple reason. They're a lot easier to do. They, they very often do not cover a lot of the issues that are problematic in the WTO context, mm -hmm. like agricultural subsidies, for example, uh, or subsidies generally. They, they may cover things like um, they may cover things like uh, tariffs, but I mean, when you look at it, generally speaking, in a time where you've got so much uh, so much production and trade takes place with components as part of the global value and production chain, that people are lowering their tariffs on most goods unilaterally. And inside the context of, of many regional agreements, if you're Mexico and you belong to, I don't know, dozens of bilateral or regional agreements, your tariffs, your, your general tariff, not your tariff ceiling here, but the tariff that you apply on goods as it comes into the country, it's going to be really low. Mm -hmm. The same is true in the U.S. and in many other countries. But you do not have to take on things like um, 
Well, uh, you don't have to take on things like um, tariffs for agriculture. You may, but you don't have to. Anti-dumping rules, subsidies rules, safeguards rules, all of these key rules in the WTO you don't have to deal with. But in some cases, in some cases, what you have also are agreements that have WTO plus requirements. Uh, it, they, there may be um, a push from Dame Honduras to have higher levels of intellectual property protection or uh, environmental um, standards, labor standards, things like that, which in the WTO context have not been um, employed to the same extent because getting a consensus of the 157 is just proven to be too difficult. So you, you have, it's also a situation in which with a lot of these agreements, you have a big country or a big market which is essentially dictating to smaller countries what it wants to see. Mm -hmm. uh, that country really wants access to the market, so it's prepared to accept things which they, in the WTO context it would not accept. Sometimes it's a bit of a mystery when you say to, to, to governments, well, why would you guys not agree to this in the Doha round if you're agreeing to it with 35 other countries? Um, and they say, well, we need to get access to this market. Right. It's, it's easier also for developing countries in the WTO because they work together in groups. They can't be picked off uh, one by one. They, they band together, whether it's the African group or the LDC group or the African, Caribbean, and Pacific group, and they take a, they take a, a, a firm line and uh, they have a lot more clout than they would if they were an individual country negotiating with a giant like, like China or the EU, the US, or Japan. Okay. So then, given that those kinds of regional trade agreements threaten to really undermine the, what the WTO is doing, if everyone's going outside of the WTO to negotiate trade agreements, what's the solution? How, how do we prevent that from happening? Well, I mean, basically what's happened is, is, is that our rules were last modernized with the conclusion of the Uruguay Round, and that was almost 20 years ago. And the, the, the global economy moves a lot quicker than, than, than we do. Uh, so the answer to that is, it's, it's a very good question. There are some people who think that there ought to be um, uh, ways in which governments can negotiate so-called plurilateral agreements inside the WTO, in which not all countries sign up to it, like the government procurement agreement. That's a good example. China, by the way, is negotiating this, and while it doesn't seem likely they're going to conclude this year, we do expect before the year is out a new offer from them. Okay. Uh, uh, they have been negotiating, right. making serious proposals, but that has gone, um, we never really expected it to be done this year. You know, we got a new agreement last year mm -hmm. uh, uh, among, the, among the 50 or so countries that are, that are signatories to that agreement. Uh, and then the question with these plurilateral agreements is, how, how do you do them? Do you do them so that they're open? The Information Technology Agreement, which deals with information technology products, uh, countries that comprise about 95% of world trade in this particular um, type of product, agreed back in 1998 to eliminate duties on these products. Uh, so they don't charge any tax on imports of any of these products. This is, by the way, one of the reasons that the global value chain was able to, um, to, to expand and prosper was because inputs of technology products were, were duty-free. Sure, uh, okay. But those countries that have not signed up to it also benefit from the basic most favored nation MFN tariff. So even though they are, they are, they are themselves not opening their markets, they benefit from the fact that others have. The, the, um, the government procurement agreement is a closed agreement. The benefits of this do not apply China does not benefit from uh, open markets in the U.S. or EU to the same extent that others do who are signatory. So the question is, does this sort of process continue to emerge? You, you are seeing, for example, in services right now, there's, I think, 17 countries that are negotiating in services to open markets across the board in various sectors of the services uh, economy. And the question that's before them is, 
would this be an open agreement or not? The U.S. says they don't want it to be open because they don't want free riders like China, India, Brazil, Indonesia to benefit from an agreement uh, to which they are not a party. Mm -hmm. Others say, well, you, you, need, you need to bring them in because that's where the growth is. You can start out with this. They would benefit from this to some extent. True. Um, but if they keep their markets closed, then they will themselves be hurt because that stifles innovation and, um, and competitiveness. So that's one, that's one possible solution. Another solution with respect to the Doha round has been, well, are there elements of this negotiation where a deal can be done? We know that lowering industrial tariffs is very difficult. We know that certain elements of intellectual property protection are difficult. We know that we know that uh, agriculture subsidies and agricultural market access, these are very difficult issues. There's a range of difficult issues, about 20 or so in total. And under the structure of the Doha round, all of these things had to be agreed before any of them could be agreed uh, under a system called the single undertaking. And at the ministerial conference we had last year, the ministers agreed to, to move away from this single undertaking to see if there were areas where agreement could be, could be made uh, among the members. And that's what's been going on in things like trade facilitation and some elements of agricultural export subsidies. So that's what people are trying to do. They, they feel as though they're somewhat less hamstrung. The question then emerges, what about the rest of the package? Other governments are coming forward and saying, hey, look, the world's moved on. We've got to bring in other issues, trade and environment, uh, to a greater extent than we have it now. We need to look at things like competition policy. We need to look at things like, um, well, the whole question of food trade. In the past, the issues were about import, bear import restrictions. Now, in times of high prices and, um, and scarce supply, it's export restrictions that are more of a concern to many governments than import restrictions. So people are saying, should we add new issues? Would that change the negotiating dynamic? No decisions have been taken on that issue there. The governments are pushing. Right. Okay. So another issue that that seems to have the potential, at least, to um, to weaken the the value of the WTO is when countries um, like the United States, for example. Apply um, anti-subsidy or count, you know, countervailing duties. So the anti -dumping most anti-dumping or countervailing, anti anti or countervailing right. So right. in the in the U.S., you know, recently um, a big case on uh, solar cells and panels from China. Yep. So yep. instead of taking I instead of taking the case to the WTO. Not that companies take cases to the WTO, but instead of asking the administration to take the case to the WTO, the companies ask the Department of Commerce to, to rule on, on the subsidy and dumping issues. Does that, do you think that the ability of countries to do that undermines uh, the WTO? Well, no, because WTO rules are very clear. They permit... Um, anti-dumping duties, they permit the application of countervailing, uh, countervailing duties as well, provided that they are within the WTO rules. Now, these are among our most complex rules, but in essence, what they say is you can apply this, but it has to be done in a transparent way. You have to do it in such a way that it is clear that whatever benefit this foreign company is, is receiving, um, whether it's a subsidy or whether they're dumping their, their product below price, that indeed the prices of these goods are below what they might otherwise be and that your, your industry has been injured as a result. That's the first thing. And then you have to basically apply a, a time limit to this. You can check to make sure this is the situation has, you need to check to make sure the situation is no longer um, as it had been. Um, but it has to also be done in a clear way and a transparent way. Provided those things are done, the WTO rules say this is okay. Now, these things are fabulously complex, and 
very often, if you look at our dispute settlement uh, uh, record, we've got more than 430 disputes that have been filed. I think it's something like two-thirds of them have been on these kinds of, of um, uh, re trade remedies that have been applied uh, by domestic governments. And it's not just the U.S. that applies them. It's interesting. The U.S. is a, a major user of these kinds of things, but many other countries use them. China is the biggest target, really, globally. But the U.S., in many cases, is the number two target of these same kinds of, uh, of, same kinds of actions. So it cuts both ways. Uh, you are allowed to do it again, and you can bring the case. If you believe is, uh, that, the, that the rules have not been respected, you have every right to bring a case to the WTO dispute settlement body to have it settled. Okay. I guess so. So I, I understand that it's allowed within the WTO rules. What's the purpose of allowing um, companies to, to go to their governments and ask for these rulings? rather than saying, no, you can't do that. If you have a dispute, you have to take it to the WTO. If you feel like companies have been unfairly subsidized or are dumping, you have to take it to the WTO. Well, some of the arguments are that the WTO dispute settlement uh, system takes longer than uh, a, an action by a government. Our dispute settlement system actually works much more quickly than many national courts and much more quickly than most uh, regional or multilateral um, uh, dispute settlement entities. But it, an investigation from the ITC into an anti-dumping or countervailing case or a, or a um, uh, presentation to the Commerce Department is a lot faster. And again, if governments are not adhering to to the rules you can apply you can apply um, uh, the WTO's dispute settlement understanding and bring a case and if you look at the cases that the US has brought or others have brought against China these are the kinds of cases that they are you, you can and then what what has happened in the past is that when the US brings these cases they have dispute settlement cases brought against them and sometimes they win and sometimes they lose right okay so, with... I mean, I mean, generally speaking, and this was another subject of one of our World Trade Reports, these measures are very, they provide a safety valve. If you're going to open trade, you have to have in place certain measures which would, if there are surges of imports, you need to be able to say, okay, these guys are doing something here which is probably or possibly not within the scope of the rules, we need to take action. Uh, if that if that lever were not available to governments, they'd be much more reticent to open markets, uh, generally speaking. That was at least the, the, the findings of our economists. Okay, okay. Now, some people say that countries are are intimidated to bring cases to the WTO for fear of retaliation. Yeah, people have said that. Well, and what, what's your thinking on that? Well, I'm sure it's happened. I mean, I've, I've never seen it happen, um, but that doesn't mean that hasn't been the case. Um, but I do know that, that, um, that big countries make other countries nervous. Having said that, the big countries are the ones that have been hit with the most dispute settlement case, cases put against them uh, of anyone else. U.S., China, EU, Japan are in the top four spots. Mm -hmm. uh, and Brazil and India are, are emerging, these emerging countries, Turkey, they're much more active on both sides of the dispute settlement system than was the case before. So, yes, yes, I'm, I'm sure that that has happened, but the evidence suggests that the big guys... Uh, are are certainly getting hit with their share of, of suits brought against them. Okay, sure. Again, I, 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 you can if you go onto the website, you can see all of these all of this data uh, cases brought by country. U.S. is the number one uh, complainant and the number one recipient of cases brought against it. Yeah, I put together a table of of cases brought against the U.S., EU countries, China. Brazil and Japan, and yeah, what I mean, absolutely clear. When it was interesting when China joined the WTO, and this happened, 
this was a very foreign concept for many people in China, the notion of a, an arbitration. Uh, and a lot of people, like I used to get phone calls from people, they were outraged, saying this is an insult to our country. And he would say, well, no, no, it isn't. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very good way of taking a lot of steam out of these disputes. You bring it here, it gets resolved here. It doesn't drag on endlessly. You don't have um, uh, Hu Jintao and Barack Obama talking about solar panels at a summit because they don't need to. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got a system where it can be dealt with by lawyers and technicians and settled in a way which is in line with the rules. Uh, now, not everybody likes all the rulings. People tend to like the rulings when they win much more than the rulings when they lose, but that's, that's part of the system. And I think that there's a certain order that has been brought about by this where you didn't have people responding to um, alleged violations of global trade rules by taking unilateral trade actions, which could quickly spiral out of control. Right, right. Okay. Have you seen, as, as developing countries have, as the economies of developing countries have uh, really grown significantly, and I think certainly not always, but in many of those countries, like I said before, the philosophy about the role of government in economic development is different than the philosophy in the United States or in many Western European countries. So do you see a shift now within the WTO sort of to, to align more with the countries that believe the government should have a, a, a hand in economic development? Well, I mean, I, I think that every country to a certain extent has the government involved in, um, in the economy. And it may, be in different, may take different forms. But, I mean, look at the aerospace industry in the U.S. I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to say that the aerospace industry in the U.S. and the WTO dispute settlement case um, confirmed this, that, that, that because of programs like NASA, because of, uh, of various defense programs, that this has had a beneficial effect, um, not, not necessarily outside the scope of WTO rules, although the WTO dispute settlement panel in the Boeing case ruled that there were instances where this was outside the scope, um, but that government involvement uh, had been an important component, uh, both in terms of research, but in terms also of support, etc. So, I mean, it's, it's a different kind of system. The U.S. certainly does not have a dirigiste form of, of, of government in terms of its economy. Um, and you're right, there is a certain um, degree of... Um, of freedom of regulation in the U.S. compared to other places, although you'll get arguments on that, too, from certain people there. Uh, but I think it, you know, it's, it's one of the interesting things about this place, Molly, is that nothing is black and white, really. Um, everybody, you know, has, has certain strengths and weaknesses, and the roles of their governments differ, for sure, but I, I wouldn't say it's fair to say that, that there is no country in which the government is not involved. Uh, certainly, there are varying degrees, and certainly in some countries there's a much greater extent of government involvement than, than there is in other countries. And, and you touched on this earlier. A lot of it comes from uh, non-tariff measures. Government might say, um, well, we think that all new cars coming into our country have to be inspected by this arthritic 74-year-old man with myopia um, who, you know, doesn't work a very long day, but we could probably inspect, I don't know, four or five cars a week. You could do something like this. Right. You could, you could set standards. And it's a, very, it's a very challenging debate because a lot of these standards that are being put in place in governments, uh, by governments in, in countries around the world, are very important. Right. Health and safety standards, in the, under our rules, these trump trade. If you have health and safety concerns, uh, legitimate concerns, you keep a product or a service out. It's that, it's that straightforward. Uh, now, have governments 
used the pretext of these kinds of things as a means of keeping out products that were legitimately safe? Of course they have. Right, so, right. I mean, I mean, that's that's one of our rules here is to try and provide some a some guidance in terms of rules about what you can and cannot do, and then at the end of the day, because there is a degree of of um, uh, uncertainty, um, not everything is cut and dried. The rules there are gaps um, that you bring the case here, and a, and a panel will have to take a take a ruling on it. And and how is the how is the panel formed? Who decides who's on the panel? Normally, what happens is the, the, the two governments, if the two parties can reach agreement, then that's, that's what they do. If they can't, and increasingly that's the case, they go to the director general and he does this. Okay. His, the, the lawyers who work here will bring a roster of panelists. Normally, you have to have a mix of developing and developed countries you have to. You can't have someone from that particular country on the panel. Um, you look at the experience that they have. And there are hundreds of people who have been who have served on panels before, who have experience. With perhaps their lawyers or academics or government officials who have an understanding of the specific topic at hand. Okay. All right. So it it sounds, Keith, like. As with most things, you know, you said it's it's not black or white, that certainly there are areas where we'd like the WTO to work better, but there are very many areas where the WTO works well to fulfill its mission of open trade for all. Well, rules-based trade, that's oh, the key. Okay. Rules-based trade with a trend to market opening. Trade opening... The, the, the assessment of, of members, of politicians, of economists over the last 70, 80 years has been the trade opening is something which generates wealth. Yeah. It's, it's not, it it's can be messy, um, but it's certainly, we also know that closing trade does not protect people. What it does do is um, raise tensions and render your economy uh, more moribund. Um, and these rules are still in place, and, and you'll see, despite intense protectionist pressures all around the globe since the financial crisis broke out, most governments, most of the time, have stuck up to the rules in the face of these very difficult pressures. And, and the principal reason is because of their commitments here. They know there's dispute settlement. They know that it's a fragile thing, and people don't adhere to these rules. Well then, I mean, the only reason that they are that they work is because governments stick by their pledges, and 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 part of that also is this whole global supply chain, where if you shoot at some at, at imports coming into your country, you're shooting at your own exports because you're going to make them, you're going to render them uncompetitive, more costly. Uh, you you restrict access to to the best quality inputs, and that's going to hurt your exports. So for those two reasons, people are understanding about you, you need to keep markets open. But it's, I don't underestimate the difficulty that governments have had in trying to trying to resist uh, this kind of pressure. But the rules here and our we and one of our functions is monitoring trade. And you can go and you can see the reports that we've been putting out. Uh, I think it's been nine or ten of them since the since the outbreak of the crisis back in 2008 2009. Um, and we've got a we've got a pretty good record of of sticking to these rules. So in terms of that type of thing, and in terms of dispute settlement re um, resolution, it's working well. In terms of let's call it the legislative element of our work, well, we're having difficulty. There's no question, and and it hasn't been made any easier by the economic circumstances that we confront today. To the contrary. Right, and and what do you mean by the legislative aspect? Well, making new rules. Okay. Right. Uh, for the reasons that I mentioned, I mean, it's it's a consensus-based system, and it, I mean, one of the things that happens here is also not every country plays by exactly the same sets of rules. The poorer countries are given a much much greater leeway than the richer countries. 
Right, and you said, so when you talked about less than full reciprocity, you said China is a bit different because of, of its rigorous process of accession. Yes. Does, does China still have some areas where it has less than full reciprocity? Where they still have very high tariffs, you mean? Well, right, where, where they're allowed to essentially play by different rules than the developed countries. Well, yes. Yes, they, they did. They, they, um, they have greater scope for subsidizing than do, um, than do industrial countries, although under the terms of their accession, they have greater restrictions than many other developing countries. Okay. They were also subjected, by the way, for 10 years after entering the WTO to a special trade policy review of the members where they specifically, we have a trade policy review for every member. Big countries go every couple of years, um, medium sized every four, every four years, and the poorer countries every eight years. But China was subjected to a special transitional review every year for 10 years that no other country had to go through. And, and governments can apply certain kinds of countervailing measures against Chinese actions that they cannot apply with respect to any other country because this was written into their accession protocol. So while on the one hand they have more flexibility, they've also had to encounter specific circumstances which they viewed to be more onerous than those that uh, face other countries. Okay, I see, I see. Again, it, nothing, nothing is black or white. Right, yeah, absolutely, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's a good point, Keith, and one that, I mean, that's kind of what we're trying to do, is show people what, you know, show people the gray area and get people to understand yeah. that it's not.